Section eight of Elizabethan Demonology by Thomas Alfred Spaulding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Davis. In comparing the evidence to be deduced from the contemporary records of witchcraft with the sayings and doings of the sisters in Macbeth, these parts of the play will first be dealt with, upon which no doubt as to their genuineness has ever been cast, and which are asserted to be solely applicable to Norns. If it can be shown that these describe witches rather than Norns, the position that Shakespeare intentionally substituted witches for the goddesses of destiny mentioned in his authority is practically unassailable. First, then, it is asserted that the description of the appearance of the sisters given by Banquo applies to Norns rather than witches. They look not like the inhabitants of the earth, and yet are aunt. This question of applicability, however, must not be decided by the consideration of a single sentence, but of the whole passage from which it is extracted, and whilst considering it, it should be carefully borne in mind that it occurs immediately before those lines which are chiefly relied upon as proving the identity of the sisters with Erda, Ferdandi, and Skulta. Banquo, on seeing the sisters, says, What are these so withered and so wild in their attire? that look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aunt live you or are you aught that man may question you seem to understand me by each one at once her chappy finger laying upon her skinny lips you should be women and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so it is in the first moment of surprise that the sisters appearing so suddenly seem to banquo unlike the inhabitants of this earth when he recovers from the shock and is capable of deliberate criticism, he sees chappy fingers, skinny lips, in fact, nothing to distinguish them from poverty-stricken, ugly old women, but their beards. A more accurate poetical counterpart to the prose descriptions given by contemporary writers of the appearance of the poor creatures who were charged with the crime of witchcraft could hardly have been penned. Scott, for instance, says, they are women which commonly be old, lame, blear-eyed, pale, foul, and full of wrinkles. They are lean and deformed, showing melancholy in their faces. And Harsnet describes a witch as an old weather-beaten crone having her chin and knees meeting for age, walking like a bow, leaning on a staff, hollow-eyed, untoothed, furrowed, having her lips trembling with palsy, going mumbling in the streets, one that hath forgotten her paternoster, yet hath a shrewd tongue to call a drab a drab. It must be remembered that these accounts are by two skeptics, who saw nothing in the witches but poor, degraded old women. In a description which assumes their supernatural power, such minute details would not be possible. Yet there is quite enough in Benko's description to suggest neglect, squalor, and misery. But if this were not so, there is one feature in the description of the sisters that would settle the question once and for ever. The beard was in Elizabethan times the recognized characteristic of the witch. In one old play, it is said, the women that come to us for disguises must wear beards, and that's to say a token of a witch. And in another, some women have beards, marry, they are half-witches. And Sir Hugh Evans gives decisive testimony to the fact when he says of the disguised Falstaff, by yea and no, I think, the omen is a witch indeed. I like not when an omen has a great beard. I spy a great beard under her muffler. 
every item of banquo's description indicates that he is speaking of witches nothing in it is incompatible with that supposition will it apply with equal force to norns it can hardly be that these mysterious mythical beings who exercise an incomprehensible yet powerful influence over human destiny could be described with any propriety in terms so revolting a veil of wild weird grandeur might be thrown around them but can it be supposed that shakespeare would degrade them by representing them with chappy fingers skinny lips and beards it is particularly to be noticed too that although in this passage he is making an almost verbal transcript from hollinshead these details are interpolated without the authority of the chronicle let it be supposed for an instant that the text ran thus banquo what are these so withered and so wild in their attire that look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aunt live you or are you aught that man may question macbeth speak if you can what are you first witch all hail macbeth hail to thee thane of glams second witch all hail macbeth hail to thee thane of cador third witch all hail macbeth thou shall be king hereafter this is so accurate a dramatization of the parallel passage in holland's head and so entire in itself that there is some temptation to ask whether it was not so written at first and the interpolated lines subsequently inserted by the author whether this be so or not the question must be put why in such a passage did shakespeare insert three lines of most striking description of the appearance of witches can any other reason be suggested than that he had made up his mind to replace the goddesses of destiny by the witches and had determined that there should be no possibility of any doubt arising about it the next objection is that the sisters exercised powers that witches did not possess they can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not in other words they foretell future events which witches could not do but this is not the fact the recorded witch trials teem with charges of having prophesied what things were about to happen no charge is more common the following quoted by charles knight in his biography of shakespeare might almost have suggested the simile in the last mentioned lines johnette wishart is indicted for passing to the green growing corn in may twenty-two years since or thereby sitting there upon timus in the morning before the sun rising and being there found and demanded what she was doing thou answered i shall tell thee i have been peeling the blades of the corn i find it will be a dear year the blade of the corn grows withersons and when it grows some goddess about it will be a good cheap year the following is another apt illustration of the power which has been translated from the unwieldy lowland scotch account of the trial of bessie roy in fifteen ninety the ditte charged her thus you are indicted and accused that whereas when you were dwelling with william king and barda about twelve years ago or thereabouts and having gone into the field to pluck lint with other women in their presence made a compass in the earth and a hole in the midst thereof and afterwards by thy conjurations thou caused a great worm to come up first out of the said hole and creep over the compass and next a little worm came forth which crept over also and last thou caused a great worm to come forth which could not pass over the compass but fell down and died which enchantment and witchcraft thou interpretedst in this form 
that the first great worm that crept over the compass was the goodman william king who should live and the little worm was a child in the goodwife's womb who was unknown to any one to be with child and that the child should live and thirdly the last great worm thou interpretedst to be the goodwife who should die which came to pass after thy speaking surely there could hardly be plainer instances of looking into the seeds of time and saying which grain will grow and which will not than these perhaps this is the most convenient place for pointing out the full meaning of the first scene of macbeth and its necessary connection with the rest of the play it is in fact the fag end of a witch's sabbath which if fully represented would bear a strong resemblance to the scene at the commencement of the fourth act but a long scene on such a subject would be tedious and unmeaning at the commencement of the play the audience is therefore left to assume that the witches have met performed their conjurations obtained from the evil spirits the information concerning macbeth's career that they desired to obtain and perhaps have been commanded by the fiends to perform the mission they subsequently carry through all that is needed for the dramatic effect is a slight hint of probable diabolical interference and that macbeth is to be the special object of it and this is done in as artistic a manner as is perhaps imaginable in the first scene they obtain their information in the second they utter their prediction every minute detail of these scenes is based upon the broad recognized facts of witchcraft it is also suggested that the power of vanishing from the sight possessed by the sisters the power to make themselves air was not characteristic of witches but this is another assertion that would not have been made had the authorities upon the subject been investigated with only slight attention no feature of the crime of witchcraft is better attested than this and the modern witch of story-books is still represented as riding on a broomstick a relic of the enchanted rod with which the devil used to provide his worshippers upon which to come to his sabbaths one of the charges in the indictment against the notorious dr fian ran thus fillet for suffering himself to be carried to north berwick kirk as if he had been souchened athwart the eared most effectual ointments were prepared for effecting this method of locomotion which have been recorded and are given below as an illustration of the wild kind of recipes which shakespeare rendered more grim in his caldron scene the efficacy of these ointments is well illustrated by a story narrated by reginald scott which unfortunately on account of certain incidents cannot be given in his own terse words the hero of it happened to be staying temporarily with a friend and on one occasion found her rubbing her limbs with a certain preparation and mumbling the while after a time she vanished out of his sight and he being curious to investigate the affair rubbed himself with the remaining ointment and almost immediately he found himself transported a long distance through the air and deposited right in the very midst of a witch's sabbath naturally alarmed he cried out in the name of god what make i here and upon these words the whole assembly vanished away the only vestige of a difficulty therefore that remains is the use of the term weird sisters in describing the witches it is perfectly clear that hollinshead used these words as a sort of synonym for the goddesses of destiny 
but with such a mass of evidence has been produced to show that shakespeare elected to introduce witches in the place of the norns it surely would not be unwarrantable to suppose that he might retain this term as a poetical and not unsuitable description of the characters to whom it was applied and this is the less improbable as it can be shown that both words were at times applied to witches as the quotation given subsequently proves the scotch witches were in the habit of speaking of the frequenters of a particular sabbath as the sisters and in haywood's witches of lancashire one of the characters says about a certain act of supposed witchcraft i remember that some three months since i crossed a wayward woman one that i now suspect here then in the very stronghold of the supposed proof of the norn theory it is possible to extract convincing evidence that the sisters are intended to be merely witches it is not surprising that other portions of the play in which the sisters are mentioned should confirm this view banquo upon hearing the fulfilment of the prophecy of the second witch clearly expresses his opinion of the origin of the foreknowledge he has received in the exclamation what can the devil speak true for the devil most emphatically spoke through the witches but how could he in any sense be said to speak through norns again macbeth informs his wife that on his arrival at fores he made inquiry into the amount of reliance that could be placed in the utterances of the witches and learned by the perfectest report that they had more in them than mortal knowledge this would be possible enough if witches were the subjects of the investigation for their chief title to authority would rest upon the general opinion current in the neighborhood in which they dwelt but how could such an inquiry be carried out successfully in the case of norns it is noticeable too that macbeth knows exactly where to find the sisters when he wants them and when he says more shall they speak for now i am bent to know by the worst means the worst he makes another clear allusion to the traffic of the witches with the devil after the events recorded in act four scene one macbeth speaks of the prophecies upon which he relies as the equivocation of the fiend and the prophets as those juggling fiends and with reason for he has seen and heard the very devils themselves the masters of the witches and sources of all their evil power every point in the play that bears upon the subject at all tends to show that shakespeare intentionally replaced the goddesses of destiny by witches and that the supposed norn origin of these characters is the result of a somewhat too great eagerness to unfold a novel and startling theory end of section eight